Hello, and welcome to Within the Mist, where we walk into the dark and clouded places to find the cryptids, ghosts, and the books that talk about them. I am your eerie host, Gary, joined today by author Mark Muncy. Mark is renowned for his books, which cover horror and science fiction, but always with his trademark wit. He has comprehensively studied the legends, lore, and paranormal events in Florida over the years, turning those stories into books for everyone to share and enjoy. Inspired by the numerous folk legends of his home state of Florida, Mark set out with his wife, illustrator Carrie Schultz, to explore the myths of the Sunshine State. This has led to his book collection of Eerie Florida, Freaky Florida, and Creepy Florida. So please, join me as we journey within the mist to learn more about the work and the writer behind them, Mark Muncy. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. What a heck of an intro there. That's, uh, you know, your whole life flashes before your eyes there when they do that. So that's nice. It has been an impressive life you are leading. But before we start, I wanted to say how it's always fun to talk with a fellow Floridian, especially now as fall is starting, the most beautiful time here in the state. It is, after all, when all the license plates start changing colors. Oh, love that. Love that. Yeah, no, we... We, we're in false fall right now where it, it actually feels like fall because we had a hurricane come through. So uh, a late season hurricane. So now it's nice and cool outside. We'll have three days of this and then we'll be back up to our 90 day, you know, 96 degrees and all that. And then we'll have fake winter sometime in January. So, Well, Florida is pretty much the two seasons, summer and hurricane. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've got, yeah, we get, we get three random days of, of winter and three random days of fall, and then three random days of spring, and then the rest is just ungodly hot and terrible. Yeah. And humid. And humid. Yeah, humidity off the chart. Yeah, you can't, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the reason why no country wanted us for forever. You know, when we were first settled, you know, they were like, oh, this is terrible. This place is hot. It's full of bugs. It's full of things that want to eat you, and people keep shooting stuff at it. Here, you take it, France. And France's like, no, we don't want it. And Spain's like, all right, we'll try again. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Florida does take the brunt of many jokes for the United States. Uh, you know, there, there's plenty of joke states. Florida's is its own thing. You know, it always has been, always will be. We are, uh, you know, you know, I'd say between us and Texas, we fight for, you know, we fight for the right to be, you know, but Florida man, he holds the line. So, and always has, so. I wanted to congratulate you on the success of your books, but I was told that there are other short stories and essays out there from various publications that you're responsible for, but you chose to use a pseudonym. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, when I first started out and uh, you know I was a high school kid, so this is thirty some odd years ago. Um, I uh, I was keeping my name free for that great American novel. And so I did a lot of ghost writing because uh, a friend of mine, uh, an early mentor of mine, uh, the late, great Nick Pallotta, uh, who had written 84 novels, but only six were in his own name. Uh, and um, he he told me, hey, there's money to be made ghostwriting. And so I, I, I followed in his footsteps. Uh, a couple of the old executioner novels uh, from Don Pendleton was the name. He was the guy who created it. So 
one came out every month. It was like Harlequin romances for, you know, for men's adventure. And uh, so that was my early days. And then um, I would write some magazine articles for people who needed magazine articles done in a hurry. And, and I, I thought that would be, and I, you know, eventually I'll write my great novel. And then I became a dad and writing fell by the wayside and, you know, I had to get the day job and all that. And, uh, and uh, you know, I did that for a long time until my kids grew up and then started writing again when we, yeah, you know, I was running a haunted house and collecting all these legends and lore and, uh and I was like, Ooh, we can do spooky versions of these for the website. And, um, and instead of having, you know, like we, we based on Florida folklore. So it was like, instead of having a, uh, your werewolf jump out at you, we had the skunk ape jump out at you instead of having, you know, uh, you know, you know, some other spooky monster, we had, you know, local Florida lore and, and we put it up on the website. Now, when people are going through the haunted house, they didn't see that there's something jumped out at them. They scared them, but people started, reading the stories on the website and would come in and they would, I was always the door greeter in my creepy caretaker outfit. And they would always say, Oh, is Madame Moore here this year? And I'm like, Oh, you, you've read the website, you know, the characters. So uh, that was always nice to see. And then at one point people started coming to us and going, Oh, Hey, I see you're doing uh, the dancing smile or you're doing this. And I'm like, yeah, it's a Gulfport legend. And they're like, Oh no, we read it on uh, creepy pasta. And I was like, what's, creepypasta and then i was introduced to the world of reddit uh no sleep and creepypasta wiki which was basically urban legend wikipedia and what had happened was all our stories from our website had been copy pasted onto these things and people were claiming them as their own and that's when i was like oh you know i gotta make a book so we we made the book tales of hellview cemetery and we sold it at the haunted house and that got was enough to get attention from history press and and they approached me right as the city of st pete shut down our haunted house because we had ten thousand people you know a weekend coming through my backyard so for you know for charity but you know it's still zoning laws <laughs> and well, that, that led to erie florida you know where we did the real stories and the real legends well for people who aren't aware what you're referring to is that you've always had a flair for the horror, and you were the creator of Hellview Cemetery in St. Petersburg, Florida. This started out as just a small Halloween display, but you morphed it into this massive haunted maze that you made on your own, and you produced it each year for charity. Yeah, a little too popular. You know, you know, like I said, 10,000 people a weekend coming through my backyard and, and the neighbor's yard. Uh, the city city used to permit us all the time. Uh, but we finally got a new mayor and uh, just he, he decided he didn't like it. So uh, it was sad. And um, but it, again, your your life takes weird turns uh, that yeah, at that point, my kids were all grown. And I started, you know, we history press approached us right at the time. And that turned into Erie, Florida, which that hit the bestseller list from history press. They freaked out because most of their bestsellers are written by politicians. So, you know, um, so they um, didn't know quite what to do with us. So the second book, we got a longer time to work on, got to do deeper dives, go more off the beaten path. And that became Freaky Florida. And uh, when that hit the bestseller list, that was when they came at us and said, hey, we need a we need a ghost book. So that became our third book, Creepy Florida, which is nothing but haunted and paranormal locations. Um, and then. After that, we got contracted for another book, 
But as I was researching some Florida stuff, it tied in with my old roots up in Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, there was some stuff that tied in to Mothman, stuff that tied into uh, Indrid Cold. Uh, and I was like, well, my next Florida book is going to have three chapters on Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And they said, no, uh, you're, you're going to do that book with one chapter on Florida in it. And so that became our newest book, Erie Appalachia, or Erie Appalachia, depending on which part of the mountain range you're in. And uh, and it was very cool. I got to dig up a lot of old holler monsters, and as well as the famous ones. And and that one's doing very well for us. And uh, and we're on our book tour for that still. Uh, we'll be in Huntington uh, on uh, the 15th of November uh, at Cicada Books. And then we'll be at CryptidCon on the 19th in Lexington. Um, I'm a guest speaker there, so I'll wake everybody up Sunday morning with some obscure monsters, some Florida monsters, but then a lot of really obscure Appalachian monsters. So, so in creating your first book, Erie, Florida, how long did it take you to collect all the legends and urban stories that you have? Well, I had about 30 years of stories for that we'd been doing for the haunted house, and I've been collecting them my whole life uh, because I love that stuff. You know, I grew up with the mountain monsters and all that, so it was. Down here in Florida, it was easy to transfer that love and legends and ghosts because, you know, it's like the whole state's built on an Indian burial ground. Uh, oh, wait, it is. Uh, but, um, you know, it was it was just a lot of the same monsters, just Florida likes to rename things. So I would say, you know, maybe, we, you know, when, once we decided to do it, we did want to hit every location. So we spent eight months driving all around Florida. And I don't know anybody knows how big Florida is, that was over 8,000 miles and we never left the state uh, and going to all these little crazy places to write the book. And then we did it again for Freaky a year later. We, you know, we spent another eight months driving around, um, digging through historical archives, haunted buildings, going with paranormal teams, going with cryptid teams, doing the things we do. You visit every location that you mention in your books? Yep, every place in our books. I, I won't write about a place we haven't been I also won't write about places where people aren't allowed to go to. So, you know, some places people oppose, oh, you go here. This is a haunted house. And some old lady owns it and doesn't want people to storm into her house. So we don't write about those places. You know, it's, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, you know, armchair reporting is good, but you can get so much more when you go there and see the place and, and you'll get different stories when you talk to a person face to face than you do, you know, over a phone call or, you know, reading you know, them a transcript from an email or something, uh, you know, because some we would go looking for one thing and then we would get there and then the real history of the place would hit and it would totally change a story or it would totally change our attitude on it. Uh, most famously, we were going to visit the Dozier School for Boys up in Mariana, which is an infamous, uh, you know, is the place where the troubled kids went, right? The worst of the worst child offenders were all locked up into the school. And of course, abuse allegations from kids to kids, you know, blew up. And it's just this terrible, dark place. And we were going there for ghost stories because, hey, there's ghosts there. Of course, all these terrible things have happened. But then as we got there, we stumbled on right at the time the it had finally closed after 110 years and it was being sold and uh, they wouldn't let people onto the property anymore. And we we're like, there's historical markers here and there's things we need to see. And they were like, no. So we had to get legal permission to get on the property and all that. And then we uncovered the scandal 
uh, with the help of Professor Kimberly at USF. It was actually her lead. We were following her story. And um, she was there doing ground penetrating radar on their boot hill, which had 24 grave markers. Um, and um, there were only 20 recorded deaths. So who were the extra four? And so she was doing the ground penetrating radar and she found 55 bodies. So uh, there was definitely cover-ups. There was definitely things. And the records at this place were spotty at best. It was terrible. And now, now there's, you know, it's it's still being fought to this day, but it's being bulldozed now and all that. So we went for ghosts and came up with something so much worse. And uh, yeah, and again, if we hadn't been there, we'd have just written a, about the ghosts of the school and wouldn't know any of that. So, Well, then I think it's a good thing that you did show up there if only to basically tell the story of these forgotten children. Yeah. And at uh, Tampa Tribune, uh, you know, ran it and it became like a Pulitzer winning story uh, that we were a small part of, which was really nice. And uh, well, we were there for the ghost story and I admit we stumbled in right at the right time. So it was, yeah. it was, and, uh, and then we were able to interview a lot more people and get a lot better story from it. So um, but that's, you know, you go all these places and you find things and, you know, if you watch TV, you know, and you watch the TV shows, you get, oh, the, the, we saw a ghost at this place. And then when you go to the place, you ask them, hey, how about that ghost? And they go, all right, that was the TV show's ghost, but our ghost is in this room. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. They embellished. We figured so, but uh, yeah, because that didn't fit the narrative. Yeah, you're right. It didn't. So. I like to have at least two touch points in history. Uh, like, you know, I don't like anything where one person saw it, right, at one night. Uh, if if a second person saw it on the same night, all right, I'll give it a little more credence. But if it had one or two people on consecutive nights or nights after each other or even years apart, but in the same area, same thing, those are the stories I go, okay, they've got enough meat in them, we can dig into it and we can find out this is a repetitive thing. This is something that's been seen over and over again. It's easiest with ghosts. It's harder with cryptids, but, but, you know, sometimes they have a big pattern and you start going, Oh, okay. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I always tell everybody, please, if you saw something weird or if your grandpa saw something weird or your uncle saw something weird, or, you know, Mima told you about some legendary beast lives in your holler, please write it down. The Mima's people's the crazy uncles are all dying off and we're losing these stories and as weird as they sound they if you record it somewhere and then somebody else sees it 50 years from now they go wow i saw that you know and now i'm not crazy somebody else mentioned it and i think that's why some of these stories never leave their hollers because they're so afraid people are going to make fun of them like what happened in hopkinsville you know and things like that do you feel Florida has more than its fair share of these ghost stories and legends? As we spread out, I think every state does. It's just Florida's big enough to have more than many, you know? So I think, uh, and, and I think because you know, I tried to describe Florida as the, the, the host of weird, because you look at it from space, right? Uh, we launch all our rockets from here. Right. And when you, when they go up at night, especially at night, you're looking down at Florida and you see all those bright lights on the beaches. It's like not an inch of beach does not have bright lights on it. Uh, and then you go a little further in and there's these super bright spots here and there. And that's the big beach cities, the Tampas, the Miamis, the Fort Lauderdales, the 
Daytona's, the Jacksonville's, you know, the Tallahassee's and all, you know, and, uh, you know, Pensacola and all that. And then you go a little further inland and it starts getting a little darker and that's the suburbs. And then you get a little further inland and it gets really dark in a bunch of places. And there's like with maybe little pinpricks of light. And that's like the Everglades, the Ocala National Forest, the Mayaka Forest, the Green Swamp. These are all natural preserves and some are the biggest in the country. And people don't realize how empty those things are and how dark. And that's where the Florida Panthers are. That's where our pythons are now everywhere. Yeah, and all this. So if there is strange stuff, that's where it's fallen into the cracks. And then you get the big center and it's all bright again because that's Orlando and you know Disney and all that. But they even have their own little dark history behind them. So, but that's that's the easiest way to describe the state. So, yeah, I think we get our own fair share just because of all those dark places. These stories have expanded in your recent book, Erie Appalachians. What attracted your attention to this region in particular? Well, like I said, I was working on a Florida book, and um, one of the sightings down here. Uh, a UFO flap in the 1950s. Uh, it's the same flap that led to Flatwoods and all this other stuff. There was a plane crash in Tampa from a trainer aircraft, uh, 1952. That was the same day as the Flatwoods incident. All right. So interesting, but then there's another incident in Miami. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Flatwoods 47. Uh, you know, this is 52 in uh, Miami, uh, in a town called Cre uh, Crestview. It's not Crestview, Florida. It's just a, suburb of Miami called Crestview. And um, it had a sighting at a school where a saucer came down and it had a bunch of little craft with it that were flying around with it. And the kids who saw it, and there are hundreds of witnesses, kids, teachers, everything. Uh, and they all described it as this crazy event. And then after a uh, short while later, after the thing flew away, the military come in and interview them all. And uh, that's what kind of sets this one apart from most other stories. And as the military is talking to him, one of the kids says, well, it's kind of hovering there like a helicopter. So the next day, the newspaper says, strange craft helicopters from nearby Coast Guard base. You know, so nothing to be alarmed at. So, you know, that was 1952. But now, recent, Navy releases all that video footage of the strange crafts the Chinese drones now, uh, but UAP, you know, but they, the Tic Tacs and stuff like that, they were describing. And I started getting, cause I'm the eerie Florida guy at this point. You know, I get all the emails. Hey, I saw this weird thing. I'm like, Hey, report it. Uh, but I can tell you which paranormal team to talk to, which Bigfoot team and which UFO team. And then suddenly I got all these old folks who were kids at the time or now in their 60s, 70s, even eighties. And they were calling me saying, Hey, I know I'm not crazy. I saw these strange craft and I got interviewed by the military. And that's it's what I saw on that video on the government, you know, you know, trial and all that. So I'm like, great, let's, let's talk. And I start interviewing these guys and I start interviewing a couple ladies. And then I interview this one guy who is an elected official down there. And he has the, the little address book that his dad kept when the military came and interviewed him at his home. And his dad, you know, just writes everything in this thing. It's got grandma's phone number and, you know, Uncle Charlie's recipe for something, you know, and all this. But on that date, there are three names that came to visit and he wrote them down. The dad wrote them down. I'm thinking, all right, Freedom of Information Act. I can see if I can find out who these guys are. And one was 
a Lieutenant Smith for the air guard. That's not going to help me any. Uh, yeah. But then the next was a Corporal Sinclair from the Coast Guard. I'm like, all right, that's unusual. And it's a Coast Guard game. I still haven't gotten much details back about that guy yet, but I'm hoping to get in touch with the family. But then the third name sent chills down my spine and it just said government man cold C O L D. What this is. And then I start doing the math in my head. This is six months after the Derenberger incident. Was he working for the government at this point as a men in black type character? So I asked the guy, I'm like, do you remember this government man? And what did he look like? He's like, well, he didn't really say much. He just kind of stood there and smiled at me. Oh my God. And so I had to explain to him how important this paper is and why he needs to save it. He won't let me publish it complete because it's got family stuff and all that. And he won't let me use his name because he's a public office down there, but uh, he's going to retire soon. So hopefully, you know, and, and now I've told him how important this is. I had to explain to him who uh, our Mr. Cold is and, or could be. Um, and so now he knows how important it is. So, but that was what led down the bunny trail to, Oh, I have to write about Andrew Cold. I have to write about this. I have to write about, you know, and then the Flatwoods incident, cause it tied into the plane crash in Tampa you know, a scrambled plane suddenly gets shot down or crashes. They classify the flight. It was a training mission. Why is a training mission classified to to this day? Why is it still redacted? Uh, the families don't know what happened. Um, at first, there were no bodies. And then later, oh, we found the bodies. They're buried over here. It was It's a crazy story. And so that became the foundation for Appalachia. But I grew up up there and I knew a lot of monsters and I have a, we have a family monster. We have a, uh, you know, that, that was on my land that I had a weird kind of experience with. And it was things like that, that I'm like, all right, I have to put this in there too. And then I'm like, all right, now that we're doing this book, I'm putting the word out just like I do for Florida. Hey, anybody got any stories? Tell me your stories. Don't your monsters. And I thought it would be tough, but because I'm from up there originally and because they see how I treat the Florida people, you know, they, you know, I got a lot of response and I was able to do a lot of talks with people and drive down these little holler roads and, and meet with people and go to these spots where weird things have happened. And so, yeah, it became a whole different project than I originally intended. The Grinning Man famous for his numerous sightings around UFO incidents. Yep. Six months after the initial, you know, so it's, it's crazy. You know, I, you know, what are the odds of that? Right. And and the guy had no idea. And if he had never told anybody, you know, he died, that stuff would have probably all been thrown out by his kids. They don't they're not going to look at that stuff as anything valuable. How much of that is disappearing day by day by day? How do you differentiate the history from the folklore to determine the elements of the truth behind them? That's that's where it gets tricky. That's why digging into the history going to the historical archives, finding newspaper articles and all that, you know, that really helps. Sometimes it can blow it up like, you know, the Snallygaster where, you know, Teddy Roosevelt what, almost stopped a diplomatic mission because he wanted to hunt it because he heard about the million dollar bounty on it from the Smithsonian. And, and apparently Napoleon's nephew had shot it with a cannon and it bounced off. So Teddy was convinced he could kill it. 
and you know, president of the United States, he's going to go hunt a monster. That's why I love Teddy so much. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that, you know, some yellow journalism there, you can't really look into that too much, but you know, he did almost do that. It's in his documents, but, uh, you know, so, um, but with that, you know, was that real? Uh, it's just neat that it got to that level, but there are some stories when we find the real stuff behind them is so much scarier than the monster legend. Uh, there's one down here in St. Peter, again, like Dozier school for boys, but there's one down here in St. Pete, my home that we put into the haunt every year called mini lights. And it was, uh, and all I'd heard was if you say mini lights three times, always gotta be three times, you know, mock the Trinity, uh, you know, you know, but you know, if you say it three times, these little green lights will come out and chase you. All right. Kind of innocuous ghost story. Uh, so I would put in the haunt, I made this little fiber optic, three little lights on a spinner. And it, it was just something I threw in and I knew nobody, 90% of people wouldn't notice it, but it was there for me. Uh, but then after we closed down the haunt, I'm like, I need to get to the bottom of this. What the heck is this legend? I really don't know. And when I would interview people on the North side, about 90% of the people didn't even know the story. But when I got to the South side of town, everybody knew the story and said, don't go messing with many lights. Many lights will get you. And many lights is the voodoo queen of St. Petersburg. Her real name is Minnie lightning. And she summons all the lightning bolts is why we have the Tampa lightning. And, uh, you know, and all this, uh, why we're the lightning capital of the world. And she hates Marie Laveau. So she steers all the hurricanes from Tampa over to new Orleans as a way to get back at her. Crazy. Right. And if you watch the hurricanes tend to go that way. Um, there's other legends about Tokabega Indians protecting us and all that, but that's my favorite legend for the South side. But then the other thing was, is mini lightning has gator boys and they will steal your children. Beware of mini lights or gator boys will steal your children. Wow. That escalated quickly. Right. So where does that come from? So you start doing research and you start thinking, all right, mini lights kind of sounds like Mennonite. Maybe there was a Mennonite thing and gator boys. That's weird. So I look over to Gibsonton across the bay, which is the circus town that they based American Horror Story freak show on. And that's a real town in, here in Tampa Bay that because Ringling's a little south of us and they would all settle over there hoping Ringling would pick them up. Um, their descendants still live there today. Lobster Boy, Grady, good to see you. Hopefully you're listening. Uh, but um, anyway, we uh, were, uh, so I was looking at a, maybe a Mennonite boarding house over there. There was one that burned down. And it had a, maybe some guys with green skin or something. You know, I was trying to figure anything out. And, you know, we went to press. It was the best we had. Uh, then the next year, we're doing Freaky Florida. And the answer to many lights fell in my lap. And I wish I had found it a year earlier. Um, I was opening the book, looking for something else, uh, completely different. And this fan from like a tourist fan, you would hold in your hand to cool yourself off while you're watching a, a thing standing out in the Florida heat um, from 1933. And it was from an alligator farm in St. Petersburg. And on it were two little African-American children and they were being chased by an alligator. It's a gator bait at two o'clock every day. What? And then look into the alligator farm, a, a branch I'd never even thought of, a thing I didn't even know existed because it had been closed for so long. It closed before World War II. Uh, and it was one of their attractions was they would put small children in the alligator pit and let them be chased by alligators. This was not a volunteer thing. They were kidnapping children 
to throw them into the gator pit, usually African-American kids. So that is why beware of many lights. The gator boys will steal your children was beware of the men with lights. The gator boys will steal your children. Oh my God. So much worse than the legend, but yet equally terrifying. I agree with you that it's usually the scariest when you discover the truth and the real monsters are people. Yep, exactly. Those scariest monsters are always us. But then, you know, you go, we go to ghost places that we had heard some ghost stories and all this, and you look into the history and the history doesn't quite fit the ghost. Uh, and you're like, well, what is this then? But then there's something happens, something unusual. And you're like, okay, it's, it's here. What is it? So those are the frustrating ones, but those are also the ones I love a lot because, oh yeah, this, this shouldn't be here, but it is. And that, and, and it's repetitive and people have seen it multiple times. So those you give extra weight to, right? Um, so how do you tell the truth? You just kind of got to play it by ear. And, uh, but if you've got some backup, there you go. You spend a great deal of your time in libraries researching the background. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's my it's it's almost like a part time gig, is uh you know. But the plus side is is the libraries love me. I'll come talk about some monsters, and then they give me access to their archives. So you know, it's you know, having a best selling author, it's like oh I'm I'm Cracker Barrel famous, but I don't know if I'm real famous. So you can find my books in Cracker Barrel. You know you made it. So well, your fame has expanded beyond your writing. Now you are a consulting actor on documentaries such as the subject of Robert the Doll. Well, Robert, if we're going to talk about Robert, we got to we got to follow the rules. So, yeah. Robert, uh, we're going to talk about you. I hope you're okay with this. Uh, if not, we'll send you a nice letter. Uh, but um, yeah, for those who don't know, I did a documentary recently for uh, Discovery Plus uh, called "The Curse of Robert the Doll." I was one of the researchers and uh, got to tell them a few stories they didn't know about Robert's history, uh, but I also got to be the talking head. Uh, but uh, uh, what Robert is, is he's uh, probably the most haunted doll in the world. I know Annabelle gets all the credit, but Robert's right up there. He's older than Annabelle, and uh, he's got the paperwork to back it up. Um, so, and what do I mean by paperwork? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, but he's uh, he was made by the Steve company in Germany, the same company invented the teddy bear. And... Um, he was brought home and he was given to a kid named Robert Eugene Otto. And um, Robert loved his little doll. He thought it was great. And uh, it was about the same size as him. They could share clothes. It, you know, it was very much a Cabbage Patch kid of his day, you know, type thing. Uh, the My Buddy doll. And um, in more ways than one, because weird stuff starts happening. Crazy things start breaking. People are hearing weird voices. The servants are fleeing in droves and they go, Robert, you've got to stop acting up. You know, this is, you got to stop doing this. And he goes, I didn't do it. Robert did it. And they're like, you're Robert. He's like, no, I'm going to go by my middle name, Gene. I'm the Robert wants my name. So I'm giving it to him as a gift. And he, and we don't want any more confusion. Uh, nowadays we'd have given that kid some Ritalin and we wouldn't have a story, but uh, thankfully they didn't. And we now have a lot of history with Robert the doll haunting the auto house and, you know, scaring people for generations. And Gene moves away, comes back years later when his mother's sick and gets reunited with the doll and he introduces him to his wife. You know, and she's not real happy about this and bad things keep happening. 
Jean finally dies. Robert, the doll, is locked in the attic. She sells the house and says you have to keep the doll. New family moves in. They play with the doll a little bit, and then bad things happen. They lock it back in the attic. They move away. More people move into the house. Eventually, one lady moves in and leaves and takes the doll with her, but then can't stand it after a little while, and she gives it to a museum. And now there's this museum in Key West called Fort East Martello Museum, and you can go visit Robert the doll, and uh, as long as you follow the rules. Now, the rules are, one, we always speak nice about Robert. You introduce yourself. You be polite. Follow the rules of politeness. Rule number two, do not say anything disrespectful to Robert or do anything disrespectful to Robert or bad things happen. Rule three, this is the rule a lot of people forget, is at the end, you have to say goodbye to Robert. Break that connection. And then the fourth thing is do not take his picture without permission or terrible things happen. Now, how do we know all these rules? Well, that's because people were having bad things happen. You know, lost luggage, but then it would go up to car wrecks. Then it would go up to plane crashes. Then it would go up to deaths and business failures and just all these crazy things would have marriage failures, all this. And people would write letters to Robert saying, please, I don't know what we did wrong. Please forgive us. And that's where they got the rules. They figured it out. And they also realized once people wrote the letter, it was the get out of jail card. It was the, you know, it was the pardon from the president. It was, you did that. You didn't have any more problems. So Robert still gets about 150 letters a week from people that are, you know, done bad things and are terrified of them. Please remove your curse. Uh, and so, you know, that's why, we are following the rules, and uh, Robert, we love you, and I'm glad you survived both the hurricanes this year, and uh, we'll be down to see you again real soon, and uh, and we'll say goodbye, Robert. We're, we're done talking about you. What was the difference working on a project like this rather than on your own writing? Well, they used a lot of my writing, which was nice, uh, uh, so there was a, a couple incidents that made it into the documentary that I had told them about that they didn't know about that they were able to reenact. Um, they were pleased with those. And, uh, and then there was, uh, we used a lot, you know, there's a lot of legends of, oh, the doll was voodoo queen created and all this. Um, and we were able to kind of use some of my research as well as David Sloan, who is Robert's keeper. Um, mm -hmm. we were able to use some, a lot of his research and the museum's done tons of research over the years, which is why I was able to write about him. Uh, and you know, that was, um, and have such detailed research. Um, but so we were able to mish mash all that together and they basically, you know, they, 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 I got to take the ferry down to Key West for a couple days. We filmed in the auto house where it all, all began, which was crazy. Uh, and then, uh, we had real Robert and then we had stunt Robert, uh, which I, the, the problem was I had all these NDAs. I wasn't allowed to talk about all this stuff for months after we'd filmed it, um, because uh, we filmed it pandemic and then it didn't get released till this year. That shows you how, you know, sometimes these things happen. Uh, but Stunt Robert was made by the Jim Henson company and they made it off the original designs and everything. So it looked legit. But if you see the documentary and you see people holding the doll, that's Stunt Robert. So, but again, I made sure that the studio and while we were filming the producers and directors, I was like, make sure you ask even stunt Robert, let's ask his permission because they've had some time together. They might, you know, have passed on some things because the little mini Roberts they sell, uh, I'll be bringing one up to uh, uh, Crypticon. Uh, they, uh, 
sometimes people say they have weird things happen with their mini Roberts uh, because the image of Robert is obviously a thing. That's why you can't take his picture. So, um, you know, same thing. We just, we don't want to poke the bear. We also have one of the mini Roberts seated in his own place of honor as well. It's good that you're able to talk about these now, especially since you're so busy as a guest for conventions. I just recently saw you at Orlando Spooky Empire, but you're also going to be attending the upcoming Crypticon. How does it feel to talk about the subjects of your books in person with readers face-to-face? I, I love it. Uh, you know, we, we started doing it at Spooky Empire back in the day when we were just doing the Haunted House book. And it was also kind of to promote the Haunted House, but we didn't realize we had a fan club. And then uh, once Erie hit, uh, that was when I got on Coast to Coast AM and I suddenly I got invited to film a thing for uh, some documentary on Travel Channel. I don't even remember what it was, but it was about Spook Hill and then uh, which is a gravity hill down here that you, you, you go down this little hill, you go to the base of the big hill and then suddenly you put your car in neutral and it'll push it all the way back up that little hill. It's weird, but it's a um, it's an optical illusion. If you, you know, get a level, you can see what is up is down and all that. But it's still it's a cool feeling when you're there. But I filmed a video there, and then I did a little talking about it. And suddenly that was on Ancient Aliens. I don't even know what episode it's on, but apparently I'm on Ancient Aliens for about a minute and a half. Uh, but people started recognizing me from that. And uh, and then the next thing, you know, you're getting invited on bigger and bigger conventions and talking at more libraries. And suddenly it has gone from, you know, this one thing I did once a month to once every couple of weeks. And now I'm on something weekly. Uh, you know, between podcasts and you know, libraries and uh, and and conventions, it's it's and now with the Robert documentary blowing up, it's even I'm getting calls. I'm booked up till June of next year, it seems like, um, which is you know crazy. But you know, and everybody's like, oh, you must be living your best life. I'm like, yeah, you know, for Robert, I got four hundred dollars and a trip to Key West. So you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's you know, you know, some the, some of the cons treat you nice. You know, they'll. They'll, you know, they'll drive you up or fly up or, you know, or at least, you know, cover your hotel and all that. Uh, you know, some, you know, we pay our own way and hope we make it back on book sales. So it's, um, it is what it is. You're also joined at these conventions by your talented wife, Carrie Schultz, who's an artist and illustrator where she does sketches of some of the most famous and bizarre cryptids as well. Correct? Yeah, because these monsters won't pose for anything but blurry photos. They're such divas. You know, and, and, and the ghosts like to hide, you know, and just come up with shadowy shapes. So um, she has become like the forensic sketch artist of monsters because she goes, we listen to these interviews with, you know, that I record and, you know, to use for notes and she'll listen to them and she'll, you know, go back and she'll find references, you know, that even I didn't find initially. Um, and like for Mothman and Flatwoods and all that we had to wipe away so much that, you know, the press is done, the John Keel movies done. And, you know, or, you know, that initial drawing in the newspaper, the Flatwoods monster with these big arms reaching for the guy that was all, they added that, you know, mm-hmm. the newspaper added that there were no arms on the thing. So she had to redraw it. And, uh, you know, and the Mothman, you know, the original description is not this, you know, just big eyes and wings. It's, it was like a flying Sasquatch. This thing had big muscular arms ripping its wings off of a, you know, off of a barbed wire fence that it had gotten caught in. That's what they were when they first saw it. Uh, you know, and that's no drawings of that look like that. So that was, she had to go back and do that. And then 
and she's the talent. I just do the words. She's the, you know, she's the, she's the queen of this. Um, and, uh, and she'll be up there. She'll be, she, she goes with me on all these conventions and she'll draw a little something in the books for everybody, which is amazing. I, I, I still can't, I can't draw stick figures. So it's amazing to me. We still treasure the one that she did for us. So please let her know that we're really very grateful for it. I will do that. We're packing for our trip for the, we're doing some research and we'll be heading up for, uh, you know, these events up there. So we had two birds with one stone, which is awesome. And she's, she's feeding all the snakes, the lizard and the, and all our spiders before we leave. Cause I'm allergic to all the furry things. So we have, we have unique pets. You have probably gone through hundreds of legends and folktales from Florida and beyond. Do you have any favorites you can share? Oh gosh, there's there's so many that are fun. Um, I love monsters that just have you know Florida. We, like I said, we love to rename things when they when it crosses the Florida state line. Awesome monsters get dumb names. You know the you know Sasquatch Bigfoot becomes the skunk ape. You know uh, the uh, you know there's a monster, the river monster Alahatma. That runs the St. John's River down here in Florida. He's called Pinky because he's the color of boiled shrimp. You know, uh, there's a in the town of Barden. There's this one monstrous Bigfoot that has a lantern and uh, that this ghostly light that appears before he does and all this. But does he call him the Beast of Barden? No, he's the Barden Booger. You know, you gotta love it. And he had a famous song in the '60s called "The Barden Booger Boogie." You know, <laughs> come on, this, that. You got to love that guy, right? Uh, Two Egg. We have a town called Two Egg just because we're Florida. That has a monster that leaps from tree to tree. It's the Two Egg Stump Jumper. Come on. These are just great names. But my personal favorite monster is the monster from my family. It's it's from the back hills of eastern Kentucky uh, in the town of Louisa. It's actually not even in Louisa. It's in a small town called Blaine. Um, there's a ridge there. And uh, that ridge has a monster that runs across it. And um, it has been there for generations. My, every one of my family has some story of an encounter with this cryptid. And uh, I didn't even realize it was a cryptid. I thought it was a ghost story. You know, and then now as I grew up, I'm like, oh, hey, we have a family cryptid. Oh, my gosh. And so I started re-interviewing everybody and getting more versions of the tales because I had seen something and I didn't know what it was. Um, but the story goes that it has the appearances. It's got this misshapen head of a man like a deformed head and then the body of a black cat or maybe a small cow. Cause it's pretty big, uh, but it runs like a cat. And then it has a wooden leg that is. And so of course, again, we love to name things stupid. So it's called the bench leg, the bench leg of Gobel Ridge. Does that not sound like something out of South park? Right. You can't help but laugh at that name. And I and I and and I always laughed at it as a kid. I'm like, I want to hear ghost stories. I don't hear about this stupid thing with a wooden leg that'll jump up in a tree and it'll smack you off your horse with its wooden leg. My dad called it his whoop ass stick, you know, just smack you off the tree. And um, but his story was, you know, he and his, you know, his brother, my uncle, were out collecting horse, you know, collecting cattle one day on the farm, and they saw a new calf that they were like, wait, there isn't supposed to be any new calves. And they went and chased it around a tree. One went one way, one went the other, and then it disappeared. And um, and so then they realized, oh, we saw the bench leg. And then um, and then years later, I'm out in the woods late at night. I'm looking stargazing because it's dark sky territory on our property up there. So I love looking up at the stars. And again, big nerd, 1970s, close encounters, 
Star Wars. I'm looking for aliens. They're got to be up there. And and this sky, I can see satellites. I can see all kinds of crazy stuff. Right, Patterson Air Force Base is not too far, so sometimes I see some weird things. Uh, you know, but I'm out there late at night, and I see one of the horses in the land run past me, and I'm like, oh, something spooked it. They, they usually don't run this late. And then a second one vroom, runs past. I'm like, well, that's both of them. Oh, what's chasing them? And I'm like, oh no, there there are bears nearby. There's some other things nearby. And I'm like, did I bring my rifle? No. <laughs> I have a flashlight and I have my BB gun pistol. That'll do it. I'll I'll, I'll be safe. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is gonna suck, but I pulled it out. And I got the flashlight. I'm kind of scanning the trees. And I see a glow. This glowy shape. And it comes running through the trees. And it gets closer. And I'm like, is that what I think it is? And it's got this kind of scary looking face. And it just charges into the tree as fast, right past me. And I'm like, I should have looked to see if it had a wooden leg. But... I didn't think about it. I was so terrified. I didn't know what was going on. So what did I see? Did I see the bench leg? I guess, but I saw something I didn't understand. And, and that's what I've always said about these things. These are things we just don't understand. So researching it, we trace it back, we trace it back, we trace it back generations. And I finally find a newspaper article from a paper that goes back to the 1700s and a late 1700s, early days of Kentucky as a state uh, and a peddler was walking that ridge and he was murdered and uh, he apparently fought back with an oak stick. And then to hide the murder, they killed his cow and buried him, buried it on top of him. Of course, these guys were caught later, but um, was that a spirit of vengeance? It would kind of make sense to the story. So I didn't see a wooden leg, but I saw someone with a weird head and a crazy body and i don't know what to make of it so and to this day that's what drove the the gumption to study all this and always love it so that is a wonderful story to have experienced firsthand it sounds like you've had some close calls in the past but in regards to the future any teasers that you can give with us I actually can say officially just this week, we signed the contract. It's all done. We're, this is what this research trip is all about that we got coming up. We're interviewing a few more people, but the project's actually been in the works since Appalachia was done back in you know last year. Uh, but we had to wait a year for it to get published because the world ended. Uh, but uh, yeah, but so we've been secretly working on this one for a while, but Carrie's just started the art on it and it is eerie Southeast. So it's all the kind of the stuff that weren't in the mountains Okay. You know, we're closer to the coast, but it was along those same lines. So it's from North Carolina along the coast. We're including Florida again. So it's North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, but we're also doing Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and we're ending in good old New Orleans. So it'll wow. be another fun drive. It's a lot of material. Uh, and this will probably be our biggest book yet. Um, History Press has been graciously giving us a little more pages every book. Uh, cause they don't like to go too big, but thankfully this was after Appalachia turned out to be such a huge hit already. Uh, thank you all who have bought it. And if you haven't, you can find it in your local stores, uh, or you can order it from any directly from history press. Um, 
but or catch us at a con. You can follow us on our socials. But uh, yeah, that's our next big project, and uh, and we've got a couple more in the works that we can't really talk about too much. But uh, we do have a kids book in the works too. So a children's book does sound like fun. Well, we are coming up to the end of the podcast. Any final words you want to leave us with? Uh, well, like I said, uh, if you see something, say something, report it, send it to, you know, MUFON or BFRO for Bigfoot or any reporting sites. There's lots and find your local teams to report to and say, hey, I saw something weird. Have you guys investigated here? Or, or and, and again, if you have a story from your grandpa, your uncle, your grandma, whatever, write it down, save it They're They may be gone or they may be going soon and we don't want to lose this stuff. Um and then, you know, or if worst case, send it to your favorite creepy author. We would love that. Uh, and that way we can document it and we can research it for you. We're, we're more than happy to. There's plenty all around. I, I, I'm I'm happy to take them too. And I can port you to the right place if you need a team to come investigate an area. I work with a lot of Bigfoot hunting teams, UFO hunting teams, and ghost hunting teams. Happy to help. Uh, but that's what I, that's all I say is please, you know, if you see it, say something because otherwise these stories are going to disappear. We're losing folklore daily and we don't want that to happen. So even for our show, we've been getting some people who write to us and say, have you ever heard of this? And if we haven't, then they tell us their version of the story. In fact, that was one of my biggest regrets that when we had our table at Spooky Empire, we met with so many people sharing stories and I didn't bring our microphone to record any of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always have my voice recorder. Yeah. yeah everywhere you go, you go to any building and say, you know, the waitress comes up and, you know, and, and you know, you talk to them and then say, hey, is there any ghost stories? Uh, they'll tell you. Yeah. And, and and next thing you know, you got a new haunted location you didn't know about. But, um, you know, and then if nothing else, you know, tell your local podcast, you know, come on, call your podcast and give them the story, too. That's a good way of it's preserving it orally, which is the way it was always done. So it's telling stories around the fire. And uh, we love that. So. For people interested in these amazing books, they can be found on Amazon or at the publishing home site. Or, as Mark mentioned, you might even get the chance to meet with him at a convention by you very soon. For the latest news of projects and public appearances, I suggest you visit their Instagram or Facebook page of Erie, Florida. There's also a website at www.erieflorida.com. Links will be available in our show notes. With all of these incredible books in hand, I think it's time to exit the mist and bring this interview to a close. I want to personally thank Mark Muncie for his time and insight into the other side of Florida and the Appalachians. I hope you enjoyed our interview today and will join us again next week. But until then... Why don't you take a day trip to one of Florida's more unique locations and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>